You've never had an empty moment in your entire life, have you? Only my share. Where are you going? I didn't mean to pry. I'm looking for a private island. What are you running away from? Why do you ask that? No. People never run away from anything. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Real Podcast. My name is Ken. And my name is Jeremy. And this week we are going to be discussing Alfred Hitchcock's classic, Psycho, the original, the one that came out in 1960. Uh, can you believe it's already been 60 years, Jeremy? That's a long time. I'm not even, I guess, what am I, like a quarter of that or something? <laughs> no, I'm not 15. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, man, it, it's pretty crazy that this is uh, more than two decades older than I am, uh, or about two two decades older than I am. And that just I give away my age. But uh, before we do talk about uh, Psycho today, uh, I just wanted to share uh, a little bit of entertainment news. And this week, instead of what we've been doing with movie news, there was some big TV news. And so last month, Disney released the official. Uh, the Mandalorian season two trailer. And then um, it, within the last week, Disney has since released two more teaser trailers uh, in anticipation for the season two premiere. And so since this episode that we're recording right now is going to be live uh, on Monday, the Monday before uh, the season two premiere, Jeremy, what are you anticipating the most from the Mandalorian season two? Just like as a whole. Okay, so I know. Have you seen Ken uh, Star Wars: The Clone Wars? Not not Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, but the actual Star Wars: The Clone Wars like animated series or I movie. Not. I have not. Okay, so what I'm looking forward to the most, and I, I'm pretty sure there will be a lot of Star Wars fans that agree with me, is the character of. Ahsoka Tano appearing in Mandalorian season two. So she first appeared in Star Wars, the Clone Wars, the movie, which was not, not the greatest movie. And she definitely, at least for me, wasn't like the most likable character. Uh, she felt very pandering to a certain audience, but as the show went on, she became a fan favorite for sure. And for her to make her first live action appearance in Mandalorian season two uh, is something that I'm looking forward to a lot. And she's going to be played by Rosario Dawson. So that's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, I was actually, um, you know, been watching some YouTube breakdowns um, and uh, yeah, they did mention her um, and uh, some other characters from, you know, the the Star Wars canon from like, you know, these TV shows and everything. And I'm, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to being introduced personally to these characters because, again, I, I haven't watched any of these, but uh, I'll definitely take your word for it. Yeah, there, I think there's another character. Uh, she's a Mandalorian. 
Uh, Bo Katan is another character from the Clone Wars that's going to be making an appearance in Mandalorian season two. And I'm just looking forward to those, those two characters. Cause I think that show finally got its final season just earlier this year. And it was a really good season. Uh, albeit there were a couple filler episodes mm-hmm. that weren't so great, but how that show ended and to see just more of those characters in the Mandalorian is, uh, I can't wait for October 30th. I know, man. And uh, I think they did officially announce that it'll be weekly episodes starting October 30th. And it'll basically keep going through mid-December. I think uh, it'll stop maybe, I want to say the week before Christmas on the 18th. But uh, uh, audience, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I could have sworn I saw that um, somewhere. I think it was on a YouTube video somewhere. Uh, well, for me, the the I mean, I'll go a different route, and it's kind of going off of what we've seen already in Mandalorian season one. Um, I think I watched it too quickly, so um, I think I actually need to rewatch it just to kind of get a refresher um, on, on that. But I, I'm curious to see if we're going to see any more of Yoda or Baby Yodas or the child species. I'm kind of curious to see if we do see um, see more of that species. Uh, I'm also looking forward to see if maybe Boba Fett makes a, a, a an appearance. Uh, I mean, th- those are just rumors, but we'll see. I mean, it's something definitely to look forward to to see if we if we do see Boba Fett. And also just kind of going off of what we've already seen in season one, I'm kind of curious to see if they're going to reveal who uh, that figure was that was walking up to Fennec Shan's body at the end of season one episode five and so i'm kind of curious to see if they're gonna tie up that loose end from season i wouldn't one. be surprised if it's boba fat man dude that'd be sick <laughs> that'd be sick because you don't uh, want him to die in um what, what were those things called uh the the, the sarlacc yeah <laughs> that'd be dumb yeah because i mean i think uh i think in star wars canon i i, I correct me if i'm wrong because i'm just more of a casual star wars fan again i just uh i'm just more into like the big releases i heard that um the story goes he ends up crawling out uh out of the sarlacc and actually survives that whole thing as because obviously when the movie came out in 1983 everyone just assumed that he had died and died in uh kind of a, a frankly crappy way because he was such a cool character that had a cult following and i mean that's how you're going to do that by accident uh, because was it uh, Han Solo? A blind Han Solo accidentally hits the jetpack, and mm-hmm. yeah, I thought that was pretty stupid. Yeah, at least his dad got killed by Samuel L. Jackson. So <laughs> I know that was a pretty badass way to die, uh, getting beheaded that way. But yes, we have spoken on this, and uh, since we've mentioned that, we're gonna go ahead into our podcast ritual. And so, for those of you who are checking out our podcast for the first time, uh, me and Jeremy and uh, anyone who happens to be a guest on this uh, podcast, we have this weekly ritual where we like to share a movie or a TV show. And I mean, in recent weeks, we've even sh- uh, shared some YouTube channels um, that we've watched within the last seven days uh, within the last week. And so, Jeremy, uh, what's one movie or TV show that you want to highlight that you've seen the last week? Well, recently, 
I watched the movie Love and Monsters. It's a new movie that just came out. And I'm actually going to be reviewing it for my YouTube channel. And I actually enjoyed the movie. Uh, It's not the greatest movie in the world. But nowadays, I'll take what I can get in 2020. (laughs) I think it's a bit of a, a good escape from what's going on in the world. It is. It does take place in a an apocalyptic wasteland, though. But it, it is a, an adventure comedy with monsters. So, Oh, is that uh, streaming anywhere? Uh, well, you can rent it like all on the usual places like Amazon, YouTube, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, how'd you hear about the how'd you hear about the, the movie? Oh, I just saw the trailer and I it was kind of on my radar. And then I think it was supposed to be obviously it was supposed to be released in theaters, mm-hmm. but the, it just went straight to demand. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah, because I I hadn't seen anything on it. Um, I well, I mean, to be fair, sometimes uh, I'll I <laughs> I just happen to not pay attention, and so that's just my own fault. Uh, well, anyway, um, I mean, I'm glad you highlighted a brand new movie that just recently came out. I'm actually highlighting something that came out 40 years ago. I know we're going to be talking about a movie that is that celebrated its 60th anniversary. The movie that I'm sharing this uh, this week for our podcast ritual is The Shiny. It came out in 1980. And uh, I think I mentioned this to you offline that, you know, since it is Halloween season, uh, I'm trying to watch uh, some scary movies. It's usually not my thing. And so, um, you know, I, watching The Shining for the first time in a long time uh, was pretty cool. I, I saw it with my family and they hadn't seen it before. So it was pretty cool to see their first reactions uh, to it. And uh, man, Jack Nicholson's performance is still like brilliant. Uh, it, it's just a classic performance. It still holds up to t- uh, today's standard. Um, it, it, he's just so versatile in in the way he plays uh, Jack, you know, and it's so crazy how how good he is and well, how young and thin he looks too, especially too, <laughs> with the way he kind of looks now. But obviously, it's forty years later. Um, Where did you watch it on? Um, I ended up uh, finding a way. We'll just say. Okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find it on anything streaming, but I I found a way. Um, and also remember how last week uh, when we were talking about Iron Man three, we were talking about how kid actors can make or break a film. Hmm. Well, I mean, Danny Lloyd, who plays uh, Danny <laughs> um, in the film, I, I just thought he did a really good job playing like kind of like an innocent like kid, like an only child. But he also played that creepy kind of kid where it's like, oh, you know, it's one. I don't know. Like you, there's like moments where, you know, you get goosebumps just kind of seeing like his reactions or the way he's like talking to like his, I don't know, his uh, imaginary friend or whatever. I, mm-hmm. I forget, but <laughs> it was pretty crazy. And then uh, the last thing I wanted to mention about The Shining was that it's just so relevant in 2020 because, I mean, I think a big theme uh, of The Shining because, I mean, basically it's just th- three characters that you kind of follow in this giant hotel, um, you know, mother, father, and a son. A cabin fever is real. You know, like how we all had to, you know, basically shelter in place and be stuck indoors and everything. I felt like a lot of the country, a lot of the world 
to be honest. And I'll even speak on my on my own self. I felt like we were kind of going crazy, you know, just bouncing off the walls and just not acting ourselves. And so I'm hoping that since things are kind of slowly opening up, we'll be smart about it. And, you know, we'll just keep this thing going. Let's keep the momentum going. Right, Jeremy? I guess. I guess I'm a little bit more pessimistic because every time I go out, there's always something that happens. and I just blame it on our whole situation i'm like everyone's just going crazy no matter what even if like you accidentally stepped on someone's shoe they go off you know (laughs) i don't know something (laughs) crazy like that well it's the cabin fever (laughs) i know everyone's like on heightened senses right now the cabin fever is real well uh before we do move on to talking about psycho uh let's do a little bit of episode cleanup and so uh, last week, uh, we had our third MCU episode, uh, episode 12. And uh, last week, we discussed uh, three uh, the next three movies in our Infinity Saga rewatch. It was Iron Man 3, Thor The Dark World, and Captain America The Winter Soldier. And so uh, this past Tuesday, we ran a poll. And uh, Jeremy, do you want to share with the audience uh, what the poll was and what the results were. So the poll that we were running was what is the worst movie in the MCU in the Marvel cinematic universe? So some of the candidates that we had were Thor, the dark world, uh, the first Thor, Iron Man two Hulk, uh, the incredible Hulk and age of Ultron Avengers age of Ultron. So the worst the the most voted for worst movie was Thor the Dark World at 54%. <laughs> that definitely does not surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. And uh, just runner-ups were tied were Iron Man 2 and Hulk at around 18%. Yeah, that sounds about right too because I feel like it's... It could be argued that it could... Like those two other films are the worst, but uh, I think... Just the majority just has Dark World. I mean, for me, I and you'll listen to if you listen to that episode, I ranked so far out of the nine films that we've covered so far, Dark World's definitely um last place. Um, but I felt like I did like it a little bit more this this last rewatch. Just a little bit more forgiving, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, it's uh it's uh it, it's those callbacks. Or call forwards, I guess, because they uh, <laughs> <laughs> they revisited that in Thor Ragnarok as well as uh, Avengers Endgame. So it made it made Dark World tolerable, more tolerable. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to remind you all that uh, every Tuesday, following a brand new episode, and uh, just as a reminder to everyone out there uh, who may be checking out our podcast for the first time, we have new episodes every Monday. And then uh, we have uh, we run our polls on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram every Tuesday, the next day. And so, uh, Jeremy, how can they follow us on the social medias? So, if you search at Weekly Real, that's with two E's, by the way, not R A L, but E E L. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Yes, and uh, definitely check us out there and follow us so that you can um, see some just fun episode-related content. And, and we try to you know stay active with that and, and uh, 
yeah, I feel like it's a good follow just in general. So now we've gotten to the part of the podcast where we are talking about the film that we uh, have come here to talk about. And so it's almost Halloween. Um, Jeremy, can you believe it's almost Halloween? I almost forgot that we're more than halfway through October. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Uh, Halloween's already next week. I mean, we're we're taping this on the uh, on the Wednesday before, uh, not the Wednesday before Halloween, but yeah, we're about ten days away, right? Yeah, basically. And yeah. it doesn't even feel like Halloween is happening this year with the whole COVID situation. It just feels like October 30, 31 is the Mandalorian day. <laughs> <laughs> I know, seriously. I, I guess it would maybe, it has the potential to help that Halloween will fall on a Saturday this year. So, you know, at least there won't be work or school the next day. But we'll see. I'm just hoping people are just smart about it this year. And, we don't have to revert back to straight up being sheltered in place. So what happens if some kids ring on your do- doorbell? Um, well, the first of all, the lights will be off. <laughs> 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 and you know what? The candy will be half eaten. Um, so uh, I doubt that we're going to get any doorbells anyway. Yeah. I mean, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Seriously. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, this week we are covering... Uh, a classic 1960 film where a Phoenix secretary is on the run because she stole $40,000 from her employer. And then one rainy evening, she checks into a remote hotel, but never checks out in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And so um, I just wanted to remind the audience that actually before uh, me and Jeremy watched it this past week, we actually had never seen it. And so we were kind of go, going into this episode kind of blind on this. We didn't know what to expect other than, you know, it's one of the best films of all time, one of the scariest films of all time. And so, Jeremy, what were your first impressions of of watching Psycho 60 years later? So one of the, yeah, because this is the first time we have ever seen this movie. And... One one thing, I guess, just right off the bat, it, it's forty thousand dollars, right? In, in movie standards, that I was like, that seems really low. <laughs> That's really low in like a movie. I, I I forgot what the inflation it was when I looked it up. Was it was something around like three hundred thousand or something like around that range? Mm-hmm. I think. Which makes more sense when you convert it to like modern day times, yeah. But it's like forty thousand. Oh man, in a movie, <laughs> like normally they you know exaggerate the the money. But yeah, I thought that was pretty. I'm like, okay, nineteen sixty. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, it it did kind of help that you got to see the forty thousand dollars in cash, so it made it real. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty funny. I was like, oh, embezzled $40,000. Oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but to them, I just, um, you know, I think they had payphones still. Like I was reading the payphone on there. It's like, oh, wait for the dial tone and then enter a dime or something like that. It's like, holy crap. It was like a dime. Uh, oh, and when she bought the car, she for trading in her car, she only had to pay another additional $700. 
Yep, seven hundred bucks. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what a steal! <laughs> I know, you know, that's already including tax and title. You just get all your paperwork and you're out of there, dude. She was in and out in like ten minutes. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she was getting trying to get out as fast as she can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, were there were there any uh, any other first impressions? One of the first things I noticed just straight off the bat, because the, the movie starts off, you know, with its credits, opening credits and the editing and the text, it's it's dated for sure. But there were some of these uh, when it shows like Phoenix, Arizona with the text and just just the way it wipes across the screen. I'm like, this is so dated. But imagine back then they didn't have editing software. <laughs> It's all just scissors and and uh, film, right? And it's like uh, you you get all these presets in video editing softwares nowadays, where easily you can just drag and drop, bam, you're done. But they didn't have that luxury. I know it's pretty crazy how I thought it was still pretty creative how it was still presented because it had like the um, you know they had the strings of the theme going on in the background, right? Mm-hmm. I felt like when like the the like the text was on the screen. It, I thought it was pretty creative the way they had like the um the lettering and the the fonts kind of like shredded, like kind of like from side to side or whatever. It would kind of come in from like different uh, from the left and the right or whatever, and kind of come together. But it would still be kind of sliced. But I felt like it was kind of coordinated with how the music was going, which was pretty cool. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, like. I'll definitely talk about the music more later on, but mm-hmm. that opening sequence is is pretty chilling, for sure. And yeah, that that's that were some of the things that stood out just right off the bat. I'm like, okay, this is really setting the tone of the movie. And I just I actually thought it, the movie was more of a thriller than a horror. I actually thought I would get scared more, but it was more like there was this continuous tension throughout the whole movie i agree i think that definitely the the music and the sound design definitely helped in that regard um we'll definitely get into that um because i also have some thoughts on that as well a little bit later on um and uh oh there was one thing that i did want to mention because we were talking about like the opening um i guess the opening credits i don't know if you read this this is something that i kind of stumbled upon when i was kind of doing a research on this film uh, before tonight's uh, recording is that you know how like it said Phoenix, Arizona, and then it like just randomly said, Oh, this is Friday, December 11th of whatever year it was. Mm-hmm. Do you know actually why they did that? Uh, why did they do that? Well, I think when they were shooting the, their establishing shots, you know, that wide shot, I think they noticed that there were some Christmas decorations in the background. And so really? what they did was they just decided to add, oh, it's in December or whatever, near Christmas. Oh, we got a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Why are we discussing this in October? We should have discussed it in uh, in December. Yeah, it's one of those feel-good Christmas movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know what? Um, now that we've kind of talked about the first impressions, what were your overall thoughts on on the film? Well, I normally don't watch classics. I think this is honestly the oldest movie I ever seen. 
Uh, but I think this is a classic for a reason. For sure. The story may, like, when you think about it as a whole, it may seem simple. But back then, this was, like, groundbreaking. And I feel like there was, there's a lot of copycats out there that try to emulate this movie. And this movie really still does hold up. Even though it's in black and white and all that stuff, it holds up. Like, even just the cinematography, right away, I was impressed. I'm like, oh, okay. I thought this was going to be like, I love Lucy, like some cheesy uh, sitcom looking looking movie. But I was genuinely like, like, oh man, imagine if they just made this in color and had higher resolution, kind of like modernized it. I wouldn't have known. Like if they just filmed this movie now, but have it in the 1960s like setting, setting. Yeah. I wouldn't have known. Yeah, that's interesting because I mean, I mean Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, you just you basically just see his skills, like basically on display. Because I mean, the thing that I kept thinking about was that he doesn't have any of our modern technology. You know, like I would imagine, like the setup for each shot or whatever would just take that much longer because the equipment itself is much bigger, heavier probably less uh reliable um and I, I just feel like he did such an amazing job in terms of conveying like the mood in each scene like just some of the just the simple camera movements i love like the lighting in the film i felt like the lighting was on point and i'll get into this a little bit later but he did a really good job in establishing the mood that he wants for a specific scene, whether it's more of a lighthearted um, scene, um, like in the beginning. I don't know if you noticed, but remember when in that opening scene where Marion Crane is obviously, you know, spending a long lunch with Sam, you notice that she's wearing like, you know, white underwear, undergarments, right? And then when, she decides that she's going to take the $40,000 and she's ready to kind of like basically hightail it out of, out of town. I don't know if you noticed, but she's wearing black undergarments and basically showing like her flip to the dark side. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah. And her purse was black compared to when it was white in the, in the beginning. And honestly, it's like you were scared for her, but at the same time you knew that she did something bad. And mm-hmm. but at the same time, you, you like when when she's getting into trouble, you don't you don't want to wish that onto anyone, really. Oh, I know. She was just obviously in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, there, and uh, I don't know. And you could see that I, I you know, even like simp like the simple way that Alfred Hitchcock, you know, especially when Marion's driving, right, and she's like, you kind of hear her inner thoughts. I mean, yeah, it's definitely dated the way it. it was portrayed or whatever but i mean it got the message across you know you could tell that she you know she was conflicted with the decision to you know to steal steal this money and then just leave town so was it just me or did it seem like the bates motel was like just some ghost town type thing like i didn't know if someone else were to try to drive there if it would like actually appear like if that street didn't exist or anything like that or the motel itself didn't exist but obviously later on when they like talk to the sheriff talk to the 
private investigator. You know, they were actually able to like travel there. Yeah, it, I mean, they didn't really show like how far it really was from the main highway, but from the time that they always like uh, describe, uh, like kind of like the location a little bit, it just seemed like okay, it was off the main highway, and then you would have to take like a side road where it was kind of dark. And then, like, you would maybe drive for maybe five, 10 minutes or something like that because it seemed close enough to the highway where, you know, you can eventually find it or stumble upon it, like uh, it seemed like Marion did. Uh, but then, like, you could, st- it's still kind of close to the, the main highway, but it's just still off of like a side street or whatever. But it's like a secluded um, side street. Mm-hmm. Th- that definitely made it that much creepier for sure. Yeah, it was weird too that like the way it was um, set up geography wise, it was just like the big house or whatever. And then, you know, going down that hill, it was just the motel. And then they, what, they ended up showing the swamp. I'm kind of curious to see like how, how far that swamp was. But I mean, there was like that one scene where remember he was out in the swamp and he could kind of hear stuff like kind of in the, in the area of the motel. I was like, oh, so it can't be that far if you could kind of hear like people shouting and stuff, right? Yeah, because I think um, Norman was trying to get rid of... I forgot where he was. What he was trying to get rid of. Yeah, Arbogast, the the private investigator. And I think... Um, shoot, what's the guy's name? The main, uh, Her boyfriend. Sam. Sam, yeah, okay. Yeah, Sam was, I think, yelling or something like that. And he heard from the from the pond or swamp. So it's like literally right behind the motel. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like. Yeah, I know. It was, it, it was just kind of a creepy section all the way around, especially since, I mean, they uh, the way he described it is like, oh, sometimes I don't even turn on the lights. I'm like, oh, even when the lights are on, it just seems really creepy, especially with that haunted house looking thing in the background. Yeah, that house is super creepy, even more so than the the motel. But did you actually like when you went to Universal Studios? Did you take that little trolley ride and then saw the Bates Motel? Always, <laughs> always, same here, man. I always got to do that because uh, it's it's like one of the things that I always look forward to, but never fully uh, appreciated it because like I never saw the film until this week, and so I'm kind of looking forward to visiting universal uh universal studios whenever they finally do open up in you know like the public parks here in california yeah i didn't get i I didn't understand that reference but i definitely did get scared as a kid when that uh, when norman bates starts chasing the the trolley so (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's pretty crazy pretty crazy well, anyway, um, we'll get into more of the film uh, a little bit later, um, especially when we get into our weekly real um, awards. Uh, but you know what? Uh, like all the previous episodes, we do have some uh, fun psycho-related topics. And so um, the first topic that I wanted to bring up to you, um, uh, Jeremy, is that you know what? I, when I was doing research on this film, there were so many different fun facts about this film. And so uh, I just wanted to kind of read some of uh, some of them off to you. And I just wanted to ask you, which of the following fun facts about Psycho do you find the most interesting? So I did find five. Well, I, had to, I actually found a lot of them, but I had to narrow it down to my top five. Uh, so the first one that I found was Alfred Hitchcock 
uh, bought the rights to Robert Block's, I think I'm saying his last name right, uh, Robert Block's novel for just $9,000. And and he even tried to buy up as many of the copies after he purchased the rights to the novel just so that it would, you know, he would be able to preserve that plot twist in the middle of the film. So wow. that's, I know, it's pretty crazy, right? Uh, the second, um, the second fun fact is that the voice of Norma Bates, Norman Bates's mother, is actually a mix of three different actresses' voices. The third fact is the shower scene. The, the the very famous shower scene in this film took 78 different setups, 52 different cuts, and took seven days to film what might be the most famous 45 seconds in film history. The fourth fact is that Psycho was the first American film to show a toilet, let alone a flushing toilet. So I guess... They never wanted to feature. They never toilet. flushed before, I guess. <laughs> they <laughs> never did. That sounds pretty gross. Come on now. And the last fact that I wanted to share with uh, the audience about Psycho is that Alfred hit. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock insisted that no late arriving moviegoers be admitted to any showings of the film uh, to preserve the the plot and especially the twist. And this actually led to you know, movie houses, you know, go doing uh, movie showtimes. So Jeremy, out of all of these five, which one was the one that was most intriguing to you or interesting? Well, for me, definitely it has to be the no late arriving moviegoers, because for me, I hate being late to a movie. And I, un I totally understand what he's talking about because the beginning of the movie is so crucial to any movie and if you miss any part of that it's like uh, you won't really uh, appreciate the movie as much so i i agree with hitchcock there even though he i heard that he's very much uh psycho <laughs> no i'm just kidding <laughs> and um but the shower scene i think definitely just even before watching this movie i knew uh, of this scene i just didn't know it was gonna happen like 45 minutes into the movie. Yeah. I did not. It was pretty quick, I, right? <laughs> yeah. When, when Marion died, I was like, now what's going to happen? <laughs> I know that was, uh, that was shocking still in 2020, uh, watching it for the first time too, because I didn't realize that that famous scene happened so early in the movie as well. I, I would have thought it would be maybe the latter third or something like that, or it would be some, something that would happen to to set this off to that, you know, that whole scene. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, the fact, the fun fact for me that intrigued me the most was the shower scene, just because, I mean, Jeremy, I mean, you, you edit film. I mean, you, you create your videos for YouTube. You know what the whole process is of editing video. And, you know, we have the luxury of modern technology. And so I feel like just, you know, just the fact that Alfred Hitchcock, you know, like he basically was so committed in his vision and he was so patient enough to shoot just that one 45 second scene took him a, a full week to do that. And I mean, 
I think it's just inspiring. Just the level of patience that he has, uh, the level of commitment that he has to his vision. And and honestly, it's really inspiring for me to want to, you know, start creating videos again. Well, like just the fact that he also, he has to work with these huge film cameras and this scene has, you know, it's a shower scene and it's water. And back then they didn't have, you know, waterproof equipment or anything like that. And I think there's even a shot that uh, it's facing the the shower ho- uh, shower head. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do you even get that shot? And, you know, for the water to actually spray past the camera and without like damaging the camera at all is just that fact in itself. It's like, no, you can easily get a different shot that's safer for your equipment less time consuming but you know like you said he had a vision and he would do anything to like complete it even if it's only 45 seconds of the movie i know there's no gopros back then (laughs) 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 oh man but you know what i'll i'll get into the shower scene a little bit more uh because i there's so much to unpack in this scene and i definitely don't want to step on uh you know later on um in 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 this episode and so uh, let's jump into the next topic um and so jeremy uh, you know obviously this film it was filmed in black and white uh actually color was an option but uh alfred hitchcock made the creative decision to actually film in black and white and so let me ask you this do you think psycho benefited from being filmed in black and white I actually think it did. Uh, another fun fact, like the blood, I think in the the shower scene, since, you know, obviously there's no color, they were able to use, I think, chocolate syrup, I think it was, because mm-hmm. it just appeared better on black and white film for the, for the blood. And I agree, like the using black and white film for this movie it just brings that level of creepiness to like another level, mm-hmm. especially when you get like the dark contrast and like in a lot of the shots and the creepy shots of like just Norman sitting against like a white wall. And you get to see like the dark circles under his crazy eyes is something like you can't get with color. Yeah, man, I agree. Everything you just said, I mean, and I'll I'll address the the lighting and everything a little bit more later. Dude, the lighting is just so on point because I mean, it, it's so crazy with the shadows and the way it's like there's there's uh, instances where it's top lit or whatever. And then, you know, when you're in the parlor, the way like the shadows would kind of reflect it, where you see like all the, the stuffed birds and everything, just like little things like that. Or when they were just kind of underneath the overhang when they're outside the, you know, the, the office or whatever it, uh, of the motel, like the, the shadows and the lighting, the way it was lit was just done perfectly. I thought it was it was just world class uh, in terms of like the way they made it look cinematically. Um, can't can't agree more. Yeah, even though a lot of it did feel like you know they're on sets, obviously, but um, the sets just look that much creepier in black and white. Like the Bates Motel, it's super creepy even though the house is, i think is even more creepy than the hotel 
and we only spent like a little bit of amount of time in the actual house and some of the shots they got from like overhead for inside the house made the house really creepy yes like when they finally got to the uh like the top of the stairs or whatever and then it just kept like it kept going and then you had that over uh overhead shot it's like dude you know that they're not using like a drone mm-hmm. it, it felt like uh have, have you ever seen like the original resident evil games yes where it's almost like the can like they're kind of like walking around and the camera is just like still it felt something creepy like that mm-hmm. i was totally i was like oh giving me resident evil vibes and i don't like it <laughs> <laughs> i know right well you know what i also agree with you i think uh that the choice that alfred hitchcock made was uh was a calculated one because i think it did benefit to shoot the film in black and white um i felt like by shooting it in black and white, it made the film more gritty instead of gory. Cause I think, you know, if they did shoot it in, in, in color, especially, you know, like with, you know, modern technology, if they would have shot it in color and then they try to kind of remaster it or whatever, it would have just felt as, you know, more gory than anything. It would have kind of taken it away from like the psychological aspects of the film, you know, just putting yourself in either, you know, any of the characters, uh, shoes. And so I felt like that choice just made the film gritty, just gave it like more character. Um, and I, we were talking about a little bit earlier. I felt like the lighting just enhanced it like just so much more. It, it just established the, like the mood, whatever mood that Alfred Hitchcock wanted to convey in different scenes, it just enhanced it just because it was, in black and white, especially in the night scenes, for sure. I wonder if there is like a colored version out there that someone made and if it feels different. I doubt it because I think they use black and white cameras. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because I think uh, from what I read, you know, during my uh, internet research, the only, you know, the, the only color, like colored content are just stills, you know, for the posters and stuff like that and and the promotional stuff. But other than that, in terms of like actual motion pictures, I think it's all in black and white. That's why when we visit like the Bates Motel in Universal Studios, it feels a little weird when you see like, is that really the color he was wearing? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I mean, only Alfred Hitchcock knows or whatever, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's move into the the last topic of the, the first half of this episode. And so I thought this would be kind of fun. You know, we could play director. We could play Alfred Hitch- Hitchcock. And so if you, Jeremy, were as crazy as Gus Van Sant was in 1998 and got the green light to direct another Psycho remake in 2020, who would you cast as Norman Bates? Well, for me, for Norman Bates... The first guy, the first actor that I thought of was Tom Hiddleston. Really? Yeah, the first guy I thought of. I don't know if it's because we just watched Thor The Dark World. And I guess kind of looking up Hitchcock's vision of the guy. He's supposed to be like, you know, somewhat handsome, young, all that stuff. But so he's kind of um, inconspicuous in a way. Mm. And I feel like 
Tom Hiddleston can bring that that psychoness, but also that you know that inconspicuousness and likability to the role because he does, but you know, essentially play two characters. And but at the same time, I've seen him try to do an American accent, and sometimes it's not the best. Like in <laughs> Kong Skull Island, I'm like, what? I you know, I know what you sound like, <laughs> so. uh I couldn't think of anyone else because I that just that that stature that um, the original Norman Bates what was his name uh, Anthony Perkins Anthony Perkins yeah he, like he just I think he was perfect for that role and just cool. the I think the closest person I could think of that would probably say yes to it would would be Tom Hiddleston interesting and I like how it ties. Uh, basically ties to our MCU episodes, which you, you guys need to check out. <laughs> well, you know what? The, the, the guy that I thought of, actually, I'll mention my honorable mention first. Um, the, the guy that I uh, thought of first was James McAvoy. Uh, but I felt like it would be kind of cheating because uh, I don't, have you seen M night Shyamalan's uh, split? Yeah, dude, that's it's like the same thing, but uh, where he basically has multiple personalities, right? Split is a good movie, by the way. It was actually, I think it was my favorite out of like that whole like franchise. I actually haven't seen the the latest one yet. Um, was it Mr. Glass or Glass? I'm mean, just I yeah, say. just I haven't just seen Glass. it yet either. I I've heard a lot of myth, mixed things about it, so that's why I haven't been in in, in a hurry to s- go see it, but. James McAvoy was the first person that I thought of, but I felt like, yeah, that's kind of cheating because he already played uh, a character who, who had like how many different personalities, like 15 or more or whatever it was. Something like 21. I think it, it was eventually like kind of endless, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy, but that's not my answer. So the guy that I thought of, uh, you know, I, I think we're thinking along the same lines in terms of trying to find someone that had that likability, played kind of like an awkward character, had an aw shucks kind of vibe. Um, well, the guy that I thought of was Jay Baruchel. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah. How to train your dragon, huh? <laughs> yeah, that guy. Because I feel like he's, you know, he's got that aw shucks, kind of lanky, um, kind of slim looking i mean they kind of look similar you know him and anthony perkins from back in 1960 but i feel like if jay baruchel can kind of flip the switch i feel like he could play like kind of like this creepy guy kind of like this psychopath guy um and uh i would like to see jay baruchel kind of play that role where you know he's not like uh what what was his uh oh man what was his character's name in in how to train a dragon i forgot his name uh i forgot (laughs) yeah well well whoever's listening definitely drop us a note on our social medias or or an email to or i'll probably look it up on imdb later anyway but i i feel like jay baruchel has always kind of played that uh that kind of comic comic relief character kind of nerdy or whatever but i feel like he can if he if he put his mind to it he can maybe flip a switch and kind of surprise you and be that psycho interest that's an interesting choice because i wouldn't he just look like he play he plays those characters that looks like a mama's boy type thing mm-hmm. I, I could definitely see that but uh, 
I don't know if it would be too obvious. You know, if you get someone like, like I said, Tom Hiddleston, or like I like James McAvoy uh, as a choice too. It's like they, you know, it almost like they could stand on their own at, at first. Uh-huh. But I feel like, like you said, if they just flip a switch, like I feel like that the handsomeness needs to like get Marion's, uh, get her off guard a little bit. Well, I, I feel like he has a likability, um, you know, in kind of a kind of weird, quirky way, you know, because I think he could be charming kind of in that dorky way. Um, <laughs> I guess for me, it's just, maybe it's just his voice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, but, I, you know, obviously, if I was casting uh, this movie, I'd have to see Jay Baruchel actually flip that switch. I, I need to see that side of him before I, I obviously offer him the part. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm kind of curious to see how he would do. Well, anyway, um, in addition to that, I thought it'd be pretty cool to see if we can, um, for this 2020 remake, try to figure out who we'd cast as Marion Crane. And so, Jerry, who would you cast as Marion Crane in 2020? So in 2020, with knowing like the hindsight of, you know, that there was a psycho in 1960 and knowing that Marion Crane is going to die... I almost chose an actress because you know Marion Crane's going to die. And I feel like I have to go with Margot Robbie as Marion Crane because I feel like she plays, I guess, a similar character in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where she's, you know, suppo- supposedly destined to die. Obviously, <laughs> right? She as, as Sharon Tate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I feel like she has that that old school like sixties uh, like Hollywood actress type look, and so I feel like she can bring that that you know that same charismatic presence uh, to Marion Crane. You know what? I actually like your choice over mine because I felt like I settled on mine. I couldn't think of a really good one. <laughs> but Marco Robbie would be a really good choice, I think. And I could I could actually see her starring across either Tom Hiddleston or Jay Baruchel. And, and they'd be able to kind of, I don't know, kind of uh, have that chemistry, that on-screen chemistry uh, where they can give off those you know, oh, this is nice. And then all of a sudden, oh, this is kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, the choice that I settled on was Jennifer Lawrence. And here's why. Uh, I feel like she can play that version uh, in the beginning of the film where, you know, when they're in that hotel or that room or whatever, where, she, you know, she's kind of having this affair or whatever with Sam on the side. I think she could play that character. Uh, and... I feel like she's done a pretty good job in her career of playing kind of like someone a little bit innocent, but kind of has that um, that characteristic where she could kind of play bad as well. Like when she mm-hmm. basically decides to steal the money and then go, you know, she's basically on the lamb and she's, you know, just on the run, you know. And so I feel like Jennifer Lawrence can do that uh, pretty well as well. She has like that bad side. And so, yeah, that's who I picked. Dang, that's another good casting. Uh, but I can't remember the last movie I saw Jennifer Lawrence in. Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I feel like it's been a while. It has been a while. But I'm kind of going off of like her career. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 
I mean, I liked her obviously in in the Hunger Games, like the you know that whole thing where I think that's what I thought of when you know try to you know when she's trying to play a little bit more of a likable character. But I felt like uh, on the like the kind of the crazy side or whatever, or like the the bad side, I was kind of thinking of Silver Lining's playbook a little bit. Mm-hmm. Where she's got a little bit of a, you know, character. We'll just say. <laughs> I see. I see. So, well, I had fun just kind of thinking of 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 you know just a way to cast Psycho in twenty twenty. Uh, but I wanted to also bring some interaction with the audience, like we try to do, uh, right, Jeremy? Yeah, all the time, man. Every like every week. We put up a bunch of social media stuff. Yeah, so we definitely want to involve uh, you guys, the audience, because this is the reason why we do this podcast is uh, so that we can entertain you guys and involve you in in, in the conversation. And so uh, definitely wanted to ask you, uh, ask you all, who is the most iconic horror movie character? And so, Jeremy, uh, do you want to kind of share maybe one character that kind of jumps to mind uh, the first m- movie character that jumps to mind was uh freddy krueger nightmare oh. nightmare on elm street i think he's right away the the one who um uh, stands out the most to me oh no i totally agree that was uh definitely my top three uh the other two that i thought of was uh michael myers and jason Voorhees. Mm. Um, so yeah i mean Definitely want to hear what you guys think. Uh, who's the most iconic horror movie character? Um, you know, we definitely want to uh, keep that interaction with you. So, um, where can they find us on Twitter? So, on Twitter, just search up at Weekly Real. Yeah. And if you have more of a longer answer, then uh, I forget the character limit now. They, I know they expanded it on Twitter. Uh, but if you want to give us a more like essay question uh, or answer to the question, I should say, then you can also send us an email. And uh, have you learned the email yet? So our, um, yeah, we have an email. Now I know that oh, we do that. We have an email. Oh, we do have an email. Yeah, we yeah, do we have do. an email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you know what? I'm going to assume that Jeremy still hasn't learned it. I do have it in my notes. It is weeklyrealpod at gmail.com. And so, uh, Jeremy, let's go ahead and take a quick break. All right. Welcome back from the break. And so, Jeremy, it is weekly real awards time. And so uh, for those of you who are checking out our podcast for the very first time, uh, we drew inspiration from the MTV MTV movie awards and how fun those movie categories are. And so we decided to create our own version of that uh, called the weekly real awards. And so the first award that we want to give out for the for this episode is the Marissa Tomei slash aunt may award for what has aged well and so jeremy who is your winner for the marissa tomei slash aunt may award well i chose the music the music for psycho is timeless uh the music by bernard herman so i think you mentioned it earlier it's basically all strings 
and it gives like the movie this very eerie, creepy feeling throughout the whole movie. And it, sometimes it's it's a little cheesy, <laughs> especially you know nowadays. Uh, but for back then, 1960, uh, I think the only parts that really get kind of cheesy is when it, the actual kills happen. Uh-huh. But everything else is pretty creepy in terms of music. But even when it's kind of cheesy, it's iconic. Oh, no, I completely agree. That's actually uh, my honorable mention. Because uh, like, just to add a little bit to that, because I agree with that's actually the notes that I had on 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 mine uh, on my end. I wanted to add, you know, these little like musical cues with the strings. Like uh, I I, th- I thought there were instances where it would just add to the scene where it's like, oh oh man, this is it's not going to be good <laughs> where this is going. And so I completely agree with you. The music is just has aged really well. Uh, how about for you? Well, for me, the I I felt like this was an unquestioned winner for me. Anthony Perkins's performance was just timeless. Um, I can't believe that this performance did not win an Oscar for best uh, for best uh, actor. You know, and I don't think he was even nominated, which is crazy to me for the 1961 Oscars. Wow, that's pretty crazy because uh, I think he got typecast after this, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but. Then again, they um, Anthony Perkins has said like it's better to be known for one really good movie than to not be known at all. Exactly, exactly. It, it, you know what? I felt like he should have at least been nominated because he. I felt like his character was so versatile. I mean, we mentioned it a little bit earlier. He, I felt like he, he played this kind of like shucks, likable guy in the beginning. You kind of felt sorry for him. You kind of rooted for him when he was trying to uh, clean up after his quote unquote mom's mess. Um, and I, I thought it was pretty cool that, uh, oh, there was this one thing that I read that Alfred Hitchcock, um, I think when he kind of played some like test shots or whatever for the audience, he played that one shot where, you know, they were in the swamp the first time, or he's at the swamp at the first time and he's basically trying to, you know, basically hide. Marion's car and throw it into uh, basically roll it into the, the swamp. They tested the the audience reactions when you know how like it went down to a certain level and then it stopped. <laughs> yeah, and then he wanted to see if the audience would kind of laugh kind of nervously after it kind of started going back down, uh, like the second time after it stopped or paused. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Because I, I was like, oh, shoot, what's going to happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think he wanted to test that uh, reaction because he he basically said that if the audience kind of laughed nervously, that they were kind of rooting for him. Hmm. Wow. I knew I wasn't rooting for him. Maybe because I knew like everything, a lot of the movie, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I already had that kind of thought in my head as well. Um, I didn't necessarily root for him, but I was just like, oh, is he going to try to get away? Is he going to get away with this? So um, I thought he played a nervous wreck also. Remember, like after he obviously rolled that car into the swamp, he was he had these nervous ticks, and obviously we knew he was lying um, and Arbogast knew he was lying. Um, and then obviously the crazy um crazy reveal with him playing norma bates uh was pretty crazy uh and special shout out to that last shot oh my goodness that 
smile at the end to end the film was probably one of the creepiest things I've ever seen in my life. Exactly. And th- that just being in black and white just makes it that much creepier. Oh, oh I, I'm getting like goosebumps just thinking about it. Like Joker vibes right there. I know. It's pretty crazy. Uh, let's move on to the next award. Uh, we're going to give out the I Am Groot Award for favorite character. And uh, Jeremy, do you want to go first? Well, like you said earlier, we there wasn't too many like story threads to this. Basically, you have uh, Norman Bates, you have Marion Crane, you have her sister Lila, Lila, I think. Yeah, Lila. And then Sam, and then maybe like the private investigator Arbogast. So there's not too many characters to choose from. Uh, but I have to go with the obvious choice with Norman Bates. I knew that he was full-on crazy when he was eating uh, candy corn out of a bag. I mean, who does that? <laughs> well, he was trying to emulate the the birds that he was stuffing. That's yeah, that's true. Like, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this scene more. But when he's just discussing like how he stuffs the birds and like uh, with Marion and all that stuff, it's like, oh, you eat like a bird. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you you know what might happen later. <laughs> so. Yeah, but that candy corn. I'm like, candy corn is not. It's not a. It's not real candy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know what? Uh, I completely agree. Um, there's actually this one thing uh, that I'll mention on the next award. Uh, I kind of don't want to step on that, uh, but I completely agree. My winner was Norman Bates, and it was hands down. I did have an honorable mention though, because I actually did like Arbogast, uh, the private in- investigator. Because I felt like he was a kind of a no nonsense uh, type of guy. Um, he wanted to get the job done all the time, and dude, he, his curiosity obviously got the best out of, uh, of him. He wanted to really talk to the mother so much, and oh man, I'm glad. Uh, I, I'm sure he's regretting that decision of breaking it in the into the home and uh, finding the mother. Yep, and she just like teleported in there somehow. <laughs> I know it's pretty crazy. Uh, let's get into the next award. And actually, this next award is a brand new award. We've never given it out. And so, Jeremy, um, this new award is going to be called the I Am Inevitable Award for scariest moment. I figured it would, you know, now would be uh, now would be a good time to give out a scariest moment award. The reason why we have this named I am inevitable is because uh, that quote is the chilling quote from the scariest villain in all of the MCU from Thanos. And so, Jeremy, do you want to hand out your very first I am inevitable award? Well, like I said in the beginning of the episode, I didn't feel like it was like too scary of a movie. I I definitely felt like it was more of a psychological thriller more than anything. But there were definitely some scary moments in this. And where I really got like the jump scare was when uh, Norman, as Norma, kills the private investigator, kills Arbogast. And just the way that it was filmed, like that top, top down shot and just the way like he was moving kind of like all jerky and all that stuff was so creepy to me i don't like that stuff 
<laughs> I know. It looked like he was kind of like an animal a little bit at one point, right? He was just like, he's got the, he had these weird mom, uh, movements as Norma Bates. Yeah. And the music just enhanced that, that kill even more. And at first I'm like, is this a ghost or something? Are we, am I watching Supernatural again <laughs> uh, right now? And yeah, th- that was definitely the scariest scene for me. Oh man, yeah, that was. I actually jumped on that too. Um, I, I don't like jump scares. <laughs> it's one of those that I always kind of like laugh nervously after. It's like, oh, <laughs> 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 yeah, it was pretty crazy. Uh, you know what? My winner though was that parlor scene uh, when uh, Marion's eating dinner after Norman brings uh, a sandwich or whatever, and you know it starts off innocent enough. You know, they're just chatting or whatever about their you know current. Um, I guess, predicaments or their current situations. Uh, And obviously they're kind of talking in code. So they're not necessarily like revealing too much to each other. Um, And so I guess my winner is that part where things just kind of took a turn and there's that, that music, like kind of creepy musical cue or whatever. And it was just pretty crazy. It was that one part where, when Marion suggests to, to put Norman's mom, someplace <laughs> oh yeah oh my goodness i was just like oh that's not good and then you could see like you know norman in in the entire scene before he's you know relaxed he's leaning back or whatever and then when when marion just suggests that oh why don't you put your mom someplace and then he's like someplace like an institution like a madhouse i was like oh shoot yeah he just flipped the switch right there I'm like, oh my god! I I got so like, oh, I got chills after like during that scene. I was like, okay, this is not going to end well. I thought she like obviously getting so immersed into the into the scene. I thought I'm like, oh shoot, is she going to die right here? I'm like, oh yeah, we're not to that scene yet. <laughs> yeah, we're not to the famous scene yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I actually did want to give it an honor honorable mention though, and I mentioned it earlier that last parting shot with the creepy smile. Oh. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean, if 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 it was a moment, that technically is the moment. But oh my goodness, uh, both uh, the ones that I mentioned, and obviously the one that you mentioned. Oh, so uh, creepy, creepy. Yeah, those are scary, man. Uh, let's move on to the next award, the Avengers Assemble Award for favorite scene. Um, I feel like there's a few contenders. Uh, Jeremy, who's your winner? Well, you just talked about it. It's the parlor scene with the sandwiches between Marion and Norman. I think that's definitely just a highlight of the movie because you, I guess because it's 60 years old, you know Marion's going to die. I didn't know she was going to die 45 minutes into the movie, yeah. but the, the setup leading to that, to that scene makes it that much better. And he had like this little peephole in the wall i'm like bro that makes it even creepier even more because at first you're you're kind of rooting for him like because you know he's that awkward guy trying to make conversation but then like you said he just flips this switch and it's like oh red flags alert (laughs) i don't know you know i didn't i didn't catch it on the first uh watch i ended up watching it twice you know in preparation for this episode but um, one thing that I actually found, and it m- totally makes sense, and so I, I I read it in between my first and second viewings, right? 
when he does um you know reveal the photo and that peephole and he's like looking into you know basically marion like undressing and stuff for and getting ready for the shower i remember at the end of the film when they uh the psychiatrist is um trying to explain to the audience and, and obviously the cast or whatever you know the scene of like what is going on in norman's head it made sense that when he was like looking he liked what he saw and I guess the mother side of him got really jealous. And that's what basically set off that personality to want to kill um, Marion was because Norman did legitimately like her. In a yeah. Way. Because in just basically anything that takes him away from his her. mother, yeah. she didn't want that. Oh, even though, you know, she was dead already. Oh my goodness, that's so creepy. But um, yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite scenes. And uh, I just couldn't give it my Avengers Assemble Award because I have I had to give it to the most iconic scene uh, from this film, the shower scene. Um, because, I mean, on one hand, you kind of, you don't really feel bad for Marion because she basically made, she made the bed that she ended up lying in. You know, she was the one that stole the the money. But you did feel sorry because right before that she did make that decision that she was ready to face the consequences. She was going to drive back to Phoenix. And I think it was because of that creepy conversation that she had with Norman Bates. Mm -hmm. I would go back. (laughs) I know exactly. I was like, do I want to end up like this guy? I was like, nope. Um, So um, I just thought that the, I mean, this scene's an all timer. Um, I mean, we've, talked about it the it, the scene was just terrifying um like all aspects of it the music the sound design just the imagery the the quick cuts uh it's just so iconic and i mean we mentioned like that fun fact about like you know like the how it was set up and everything but i just thought it was pretty cool that this thing that i read was that this scene is what basically is recognized as the scene that pioneered, you know, quick cuts or, you know, fast cutting. This was like basically the first of its kind. Wow. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think everything before was just more long form. Yeah. I can definitely see it. Like sometimes that's what makes watching these older movies a bit of a chore. Sometimes is like the lack of shot variation. <laughs> yeah. You basically see those, uh, those uh, shots. I mean, I actually noticed that in the shining as well <laughs> uh, from 1980. I mean, it's like, Oh wow. This is a really long shot of them being really far away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like long pans were very much the thing back then. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, you know what? We've reached the part of the episode. Well, it's, I think both of our favorites where we have bragging rights and we're talking about the guest rotten tomato score. And so for those of you who are checking out our podcast for the very first time, this is uh, the part in the episode where we guess what I guess psycho in this case got in terms of a rotten tomato score. And so uh, both me and Jeremy have come up with our scores beforehand. Uh, we haven't shared it with each other yet. So uh, whenever I'm hearing Jeremy's score and whenever he's hearing my score, it's definitely for the first time. And so um, I did want to mention that uh, after last week's three movie episode and in, in the MCU, 
Uh, Jeremy did expand his lead uh, 10 to 7. And so I have some catching up to do. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know what? Let me go first. I gave Psycho a score of 95. Ooh. All right. I'm guessing, uh, my guess, 93. Ooh. Okay. We're really close on this. All right. So um, on RottenTomatoes.com, oop, accidentally clicked on a an ad. Let's close that. And yeah, we're going to go into Psycho. Let me make sure that we're choosing 1960. All right. And so, ooh, wow, we're pretty close. And so the tomato meter for Psycho 1960 is 96%. Ooh. Oh, man. That's a high one. I know. And actually, the uh, audience uh, score was 95%. So I would have gotten it again. <laughs> nice. I, I feel like I'm in tune with the audience score. It's just the, <laughs> the tomato meter, man. <laughs> it's not, it hasn't been my friend lately. Dang, but you got the score this week. Yeah. And so I guess going into next week, uh, I have closed the gap a little bit. Um, Jeremy's still up, but it's now 10 to 8. So, Jeremy, we've reached the point in the episode where we're giving out our final award of the episode. And so this last award is the I Love You 3000 Award. And so for those of you who are checking out our podcast for the first time, uh, we like to give our own rating and we'd like to give it uh, on a scale of one to 3000. And so, Jeremy, what would you give Psycho 1960? Well, for me... I I feel like I might get some hate for for my score, but I guess my reasoning is uh, I also factor in rewatchability. Like, would I go back and rewatch this movie in the future? Uh, I don't think this ha- this movie has too much rewatchability. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm not that much into classics, but I'm really glad I watched this movie uh, because it is a classic. And I'm, I'm glad that I, I actually got to watch it at the same time as you can. And I I ultimately gave it a 26, 23 out of 3,000, an 87%. Oh, okay. Well, oh, you know, the way you set that up, I thought you were going to give it something ridiculously low. <laughs> like, yeah. early, like, like low 80s or something like that, or even in the 70s. I was like, oh, dang. All right, well, send, send your hate mail to... <laughs> No, I really like the movie though. It's just I like I don't know. I'm not good at grading movies. Like I can give my thoughts, but yeah. for some reason I like it changes every day. But I, I guess I factor in rewatchability and all that stuff. Well, I mean that's that's how your your uh, rating scale works, right? Rewatchability is a huge thing. Uh, I mean I actually do agree in terms of. Um, you know, rewatchability, it's because you already know what the, what the plot twist is, you know, you already know where the, like the important scenes are or the, you know, the creepy scenes are, you know what I mean? You already kind of know where it's going to, going to go. And I will say that when I watched it the second time, obviously I knew what was going on. And so um, it kind of took away from the enjoyment because I feel like a lot of the enjoyment of the film is not knowing what happens. Mm-hmm. Cause if I was just judging this movie purely like on just one watch i would easily get put this movie in the 90s for mm-hmm. sure but like as my bias i guess 
it's like I have to put it a little bit lower just because I don't know if I'll rewatch it uh, soon, I guess. Mm, okay, fair enough. Um, I actually technically, you know, whenever I grade something, uh, grade a movie, it's basically off of that first rewatch. Um, the, a little bit of the rewatchability factors into it, especially if it's like uh, a movie that you could kind of enjoy, whether it's like a uh, comedy or action or, you know, whatever genre. That being said, I give this uh, movie, Psycho, a 28.23 out of 3,000, which uh, translates to 94.1%. Um, I just thought that uh, the, the the plot twists um, still holds, even though I kind of had like a, a an idea that that was going to happen. I was actually... Um, I was, I was like, oh, I bet you that he's the mom or <laughs> whatever. You know, I just had that feeling all along. Uh, but it didn't take away from my enjoyment because factoring the fact that this film was made in 1960, but the way the cinematography was just beautiful, it, it's still timeless. I think in another 60 years, it's still gonna it's still gonna hold um like the the performances, especially Anthony Perkins's um uh timeless timeless performance i i just thought it was it was just so good it's definitely one of the uh best movies I, that i've seen especially given the fact that i don't really watch horror films or thrillers or whatever yeah it definitely it definitely deserves its place in film history for sure yeah no i totally agree and so next week uh we're already going to be into episode 14 jeremy and so do you want to go ahead and preview next week's episode yeah, next week, we're going to be talking about Parasite, the Oscar-winning film about a poor family that gets a taste of the rich life and will do anything to hold on to it. So I've seen the movie. Ken hasn't seen the movie. I've only seen it once. Let's just say my expectations weren't met when I watched this movie. Not saying <laughs> that the movie was bad by any means, it's just I was expecting something a little different. Uh, and I'll definitely get into that story next week. But you'll have to tune in next week to hear the story. I I only laugh because I've already, I've already heard the story a couple of times. And every time it gets brought up, I just start cracking up because it the story is hilarious. So, but you guys definitely got to tune in next week for that. It's a good movie for sure. Because, Ken, I'm excited for you to see it. Uh, and... At least you have better expectations going into the movie than I did. <laughs> <laughs> By default, but By uh, default. There's, your, there's your teaser for next week. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I, I definitely can't wait until next week. Uh, I mean, uh, I feel like there's this run where, for the most part, except for last week's episode with the MCU, um, I'll be catching new movies, basically, um, for three out, of the four la- uh, three out of the four last episodes. And so... Um, definitely looking forward to finally watching Parasite. Um, but before we do that, Jeremy, was there anything that you wanted to plug before we call it an episode? Uh, well, if you want to look up me on YouTube, Jeremy Pullenbarrett, I am still posting movie reviews on there. I don't post as much on Instagram or Twitter or anything. But yeah, if you want to find me on YouTube, Jeremy Pullenbarrett. There you go. And uh, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm fairly uh, active on Twitter, uh, more active on Instagram. And you can find me both on uh, on 
You can find me on both at free Ken a, and uh, the spelling will be in the episode notes for this. And uh, the link will uh, for Jeremy's channel will be on there as well. So definitely uh, check out the episode notes on your favorite podcast app. And so uh, Jeremy, before we uh, wrap up this episode, was there any uh, last minute thoughts that you have on psycho? Well, last thoughts i guess that guy who whoever handed marion the forty thousand dollars he was pretty much a creep i feel like in a way he somewhat deserved to getting stolen from yeah no i guess he's he would be the yinsen award winner because like without that forty thousand dollar MacGuffin, uh the story wouldn't have actually um it will the it wouldn't have been set in motion right yeah that's true but then again stealing is not good so don't don't steal guys yeah even if it is from a dirty old man like that guy oh man it still won't it still won't uh go out of fashion dirty old man jeez yeah unfortunately yeah so um anyway i had uh fun uh talking about psycho today with you jeremy i thought it was pretty cool that uh i believe this is the first time that we've seen a film especially a classic film that we both haven't seen uh, the only uh, episode that we or the only movie that we've both uh, haven't seen was Tenet, but that was because no one had seen it yet. So I don't think that counts. It's a current release, uh, but I'm definitely looking forward to checking out maybe another classic. We'll try to figure that out in the near future, hopefully. And so, um, yeah, definitely had good time talking about a movie that's older than both of us. I think almost combined. <laughs> Almost combined. <laughs> I know. That's pretty crazy. That is pretty crazy. Again, uh, next week, we are going to be covering the 2020 Oscar winner for Best Picture, Parasite. And uh, then you're going to be able to hear Jeremy's story. So definitely want to plug that. <laughs> so uh, I want to thank you all for listening to this episode. And we will see you next time on The Reel. <laughs>